So we're in a series on the book of John. Last week, we took a little break, took a little rabbit trail kind of a thing. It wasn't even connected. It was totally, totally different. But if, you're, if you weren't here, one of the things I said was that I just felt like I wasn't quite ready with the passage we're on. Now, I still am not sure if, I mean, I haven't plumbed the depths of this passage, but one of the things that was just, I'm, I'm excited about it, just even during this week, things that God showed me as I studied, um, things that God showed me as I read, you know, uh, different commentaries, what other brilliant people who love the Lord have, have noticed as they've seen it, and then things that God showed me. And I just, I'm, I'm really excited about this. I'm excited about the next few sermons as we look at uh, John chapter 6, this sermon, and, and, and it's where Jesus declares that he's the bread of life. And, and the, the thing that I noticed as I was kind of looking around, not a ton of people do sermons on the bread of life, or if they do, they do, it's, it's real quick. And I felt like they, don't, they didn't really, and not to blame people, I don't feel like they plumbed it like they should, or they could, or I don't know, that sounds dismissive. Anyways, there's a ton of great stuff in here, and I'm excited about it. So let's re- I'm going to read verses 25 to 35 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you. Okay, let me just break in there. That's truly, truly. We've been over this before. That's a key phrase. That's a key way of speaking. Truly, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed. Now, you didn't understand the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, okay, truly, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. One of the things I think about as we look at this passage is something Jesus struggled with all three years of his ministry, is getting people to understand what he was trying to say, to communicate to people what are the important things to understand in what I'm saying. And, and for me, you know, it's, it, have you ever had trouble communicating with someone? Have you ever had trouble getting something across to someone? It seems like, okay, now people are elbowing each other. We're going to have to stop that right now, you know, okay. I, guess I see what's going on. It's like when you're a little kid in class and you wondered, how did the teacher always know when I was writing a note? It's because you can see it, you know? It's hard to disguise it. So when we have trouble communicating, it's because we can't get across the message. It just doesn't work, right? Um, This week, I I, I spent some time with my grandkids a little bit. I had a really good time with uh, Caleb and then Lyndon, who's who's three. And Lyndon, you know, is learning to speak, but he's he's getting it a little screwy sometimes. And he's a... uh, he, he started talking to me, and he started saying, uh, I, I, uh, he started talking about something, and it was from Pokemon, right? So I'm not 100% sure of, of uh, everything that goes on with Pokemon, although I know a lot of adults like Pokemon, not just children. But he's telling me about this character in Pokemon, but he also has a little bit of a lisp, and he also has a little bit of struggle with words. And so I'm going, wait, did you, wait, 
He spits fire out of his mouth. No! And he says it again, you know. And so then what I'll do, which I normally do, I look for my translator. I say, Caleb, your brother's speaking to me, and I don't understand what he's saying. And Caleb was like, Pops, I don't know what he's saying. And I said, okay, Lyndon, let's give it one more shot. What are you trying to say to me? Say it again. And he looks at him, he goes, I can't speak the words. And I was like, communication problem. I know how that works. I know how that works. I understand that. I just can't say the words. And here, we're going to see Jesus. He is going to speak plainly. And they are going to have so much trouble understanding him because they have preconceived notions of what he's telling them. They're not listening to him that well, right? They're filtering it. And you know how that can be. Sometimes if you've had kids, you tell them something, you're sure you were playing, then afterwards they say, I thought you said. And it's like, no, it wasn't that you thought I said it, it's that you filtered it that way. That's what you wanted to hear. So Jesus uses all throughout his life different ways to express who he is and what the gospel is. And in this passage, we're going to highlight one of them. He's going to say, we said it, we read it, I am the bread of life. He's going to tell us these things through the course of his life and tell his disciples these things. He's the lamb. He's the Lord of the feast. We looked at that. He's the Lord of the harvest. We looked at that. He's living water. We saw that. He's the good shepherd. He's the door. He's the gardener. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the bridegroom. He's the light of the world. He's the true vine. He's the way. He's the logos, the word. These are all, and there's more. There's lots more. And what is he doing? It's, it's, it's like a, a, a diamond with many facets. He's giving us looks from all different angles because no words adequately describe who Jesus is. We just can't. It's very, because why? Because we are limited by language. And Jesus self-limited himself by coming under language. And so what does he have to do? He can't just say, I'm this and everybody gets it. He has to say all these different things. We see that even, even back in the Old Testament. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there are some biblical scholars, Hebrew scholars, who say we've kind of what we've done is we've read into this passage with our way of thinking. Because what they say is, no, it's not Wonderful Counselor. He shall be called Wonderful. He shall be called counselor. He shall be called mighty or the almighty or the mighty one. He shall be called God. He shall be called everlasting, never ending. He shall be called father. He shall be called prince. He shall be called peace. Now, I don't know 100%. These guys are Hebrew scholars and some people disagree with them, but they say what it is is that we think of of, we see wonderful, we see counselor, we think, oh, it's a wonderful counselor. We, it doesn't occur to us that maybe it's just two separate words, wonderful, counselor, because we don't speak it that way. So it's interesting as Jesus tries to explain who he is, and they're struggling with it, and part of it is because they have preconceived notions. He's saying, I'm going to be the prince. I'm going to be the peace, the shalom, the time when everything becomes right under God. And all these things give a part of the picture. And all these things are different, different ideas that he chose to describe himself. Why? Because they help us understand him, help us understand him better. 
So he says he's the lamb, he's the feast, he's the Lord of the harvest, he's the living water, he's the good shepherd, he's the door. All these things give us different pictures to help us understand Jesus because he is an infinite God. And so he has to use lots of finite words. This is why scripture speaks of the spirit translating, as it were, the groanings of our soul that cannot be put into words. Whenever you can't say the words, whenever you're like three-year-old Lyndon going, I can't say the words. The Spirit translates. The Spirit tells God what's going. The Spirit explains it. He works in our life that way. And so today, and even next week, and I don't know, we'll see how long this goes, we're going to be looking at Jesus as the bread of life. Now, this is a sermon that Jesus taught, and it's punctuated by statements or questions from his listeners. So we're just going to take those punctuation points and, and move through them. And things throughout this sermon get repeated for emphasis. The theme is bread. Did I just disappear? Okay, he's going to say, he's going to say, here we go. I'm going to give you different ideas on bread. I'm going to keep reinforcing this idea of bread so that you begin to get what's going on here. So let me set the stage real quick. He just did the feeding of the 5,000 on the other side of the lake. And really, that was probably 13 to 20,000, they estimate. Um, the disciples leave the place of the feeding and boat. If you remember, Jesus told them to get in the boat and go. And then it became nightfall. Then Jesus came down the mountain and walked out on the water to the disciples in the boat. And, uh, and then they, he gets in, and they end up going to Capernaum. And then this is uh, kind of what we touched on last week. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, the crowd that had stayed where he did the feeding of the 5,000, see, they didn't see him leave at night. They realized that only one boat had been there for the disciples and that Jesus had not entered it with the disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and they went, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So what happened? Jesus gave the the, he taught and he, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples left. Then at night, Jesus left the people the next morning. What happens? Some boats that were late getting there from Tiberias, they've gotten over to the shore. They see the crowd. They pull up. They go, where's Jesus? And everybody goes, wait a minute. Where is Jesus? He came here in one boat with the disciples, but we saw them leave without him. So they all said, hey, he's gone off to Capernaum. So they get in the boats. Off they go, you know, it's like, dun -dun 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 -dun. this is like a chase thing going on here. They're trying to track, track him down. And so we come to the first question or interjection that comes. When did you get here? That's from verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, it's interesting. They didn't ask him how he got there because that would have opened up a very interesting conversation concerning walking on the water. But they, didn't, they weren't even concerned with that. They just wanted to know when he got there. What, what in the world's going on? Right, got it. And so they're thinking to themselves, we've got to, ask, we've got to find out. And Jesus, this is how he answers. This is what I love. Jesus knows people. He knows people. And he knows oftentimes they have totally got things wrong. And so he says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so he's 
totally changed it because he knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows this. He's not worried about getting into people's faces. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. He's not worried to get in someone's faces and face and go, you, you got it wrong. You're doing the wrong thing. What did he do already? We saw it with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, boy, you're a great teacher. We understand that. You must be from God. And, and Jesus goes, you must be born again. He's not afraid to say, let's get to the heart of the matter. He did it with the woman at the well. He's talking about this living water. He says, give me this. And he says, you need living water. This water, you'll get thirsty again. Living water is what you need. He gets her to face it. And so he starts in verse 26, very truly. That's that truly, truly a double emphasis to get attention. It's almost this idea in a teaching situation. And we've all had that, right? We've all had that maybe with a, with a teacher in a class when, when we were kids or even saying, hey, hey, look at me. Look at me when I say this. All parents have done this, right? All parents, and have you ever noticed when your kid knows they're in trouble, they have an incredibly hard time of looking at you? You're like, look at me, and they're like, and they do all this stuff. You know, no, 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 look at me. I want to communicate here. We've got to make sure that the communication happens here. And that's what this means. It's a very powerful, it's a very strong emphasis. Truly, truly, it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, hey, 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 look at me. Look at me, right? So he says to them, you're looking, but you're missing the point. You miss the point of the sign that you just saw because you're, because you're immediate need. In other words, he's telling them, you were thrilled that your belly got filled. You're comfortable. You're happy with that. But you missed the sign. It's like you're driving along. You missed your exit. Why? I didn't see the sign. I missed the sign. They missed the sign. They're thinking of food. They're thinking of a basic need of life, which you will die without it. Just like the woman at the well, she was thinking of just water. It's a basic need. And Jesus is pushing them to think there's something more important in life than just basic needs. There's something more important than my well-being and my comfort. He's pushing them on this. He's pushing us on this. The main point of life is not just to survive. The main point of life is not simply to breathe oxygen, accumulate goods, feel comfortable. That's not the main point of life. There's no, nothing wrong with feeling comfortable. There's nothing wrong with accumulating goods. There's nothing wrong with having money. But that's not the point. And if we're honest, many of us live as if that is the point. And we can give lip service to saying, I love God. I'm trying to follow Jesus. But when it all boils down to what we live for, it can be a very difficult thing. And I stand in guilt just as much as anyone else here. So there's a food that endures into eternity. Regular food spoils but this food lasts forever. And he uses this word, eternal life, right? He says, do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, all right? This opens up something that we really need to look into for just a second. First off is this, is that there are, in English, there's one word, life. We have one word for life, life, right? In the Greek, there's more than one word. 
and, and the two biggest ones is the word bios, which simply means biological life, eating and drinking, you know, I tell my, tell my grandkids, it's eating and drinking and pooping and all the things that biologically we do. And they all the oh, pooping, huh? you know, like that. And, and that's bios. That's biological life existing. That's all it is. That's the main point of it. And then there's the Greek word zoe. And zoe has this idea of a quality of life, something that is different from biological life. And Zoe can be used about maybe somebody who, who just, they, they found a job that they love. They found a job that's just great for them. And they go, oh, this job, it's Zoe for me. It's a quality of life. But when you attach a modifier, as is in here, the modifier eternal, then that tells us this is a quality of life that is supernatural. It's eternal life. And it doesn't mean, this is how so many Christians get it wrong, especially in our culture. It doesn't mean like now I'm in, I'm in the temporary, I'm in this life uh, of, of finite life, but my eternal life is coming. No, your eternal life is now, he says. It's right now. Eternal life, it's a quality of life, not just a length of life. It's a quality, and that's very important for us to understand because it has this idea, Zoe has this idea of a vitality and, and exhilaration another level of living, not just existing. One time when our kids were very small, my, my parents came to visit us, and it was Thanksgiving, and my parents said, you know what, we're going to take you someplace nice for Thanksgiving, Bev. You don't have to cook or anything like that. We're going to go someplace really nice. So we, so we did, and I had to have a little talk with my son, Derek, who is four or five, and, and, and I had to tell him, I said, you know, this is a place, we, we have to dress up for this place. I'm going to dad's going to wear a coat and tie and said, we're going to dress you in your nice clothes, kind of like churchy clothes, nice clothes, uh, because this is a nice place, you know? And so this kind of built it up for him, like he was really excited. And so we, we go there, and, and then the cool thing, you had to take an elevator to get to the dining area, and he just thought that was the coolest thing in the world, you know, this tiny room that takes him places. And, and so we, we're getting there, and they're serving, and, you know, you have this huge open area where they're carving turkeys and hams and they have the high hats and the white coats and it's all very, very fancy. So he's just overawed by all of this. And uh, so our waitress, who just was so sweet, she was good with the kids. And so she came up to him and she said, what would you like to drink? And he's like, ah. I said, Derek, you can get Sprite. Oh, Sprite. Like we never, we just didn't give our kids soda. You know, we were terrible parents. Um, no, we were good parents. What am I saying? So I said, okay, you can have Sprite. And it was like, man, this is pretty cool. And the lady said, and if it gets empty, I'll bring you more. As much as I want. Yeah. And then they had these little things of like mints at each individual place, you know, and he'd been eating those little mints. I thought, okay, he can, he can have those little mints. They won't spoil his appetite too much. Well, then he says to her, can I have more of the little candies? And she said, I'll bring you more, as many as you want. Well, you know, this five-year-old's on cloud nine, right? So he sits in his chair, and he gets his little Sprite, and he says, Dad, this is living. <laughs> right? So I didn't, say to him, say, I didn't say to him, say, hey, wait, you weren't breathing before? You weren't eating, you weren't digesting before. No, he was alive. He knew, I'm talking about a different kind of living. 
This is a quality of life. And man, all the Sprite you can drink and unlimited candy, that's living to a five-year-old, right? That is living. Now, we can laugh about that. But do you know what hit me this week? I thought, yeah, I remember Derek doing that. <laughs> what a dope. <laughs> and then I thought, almost sometimes like you feel like God's speaking to you, but he's not really, Bob, I laugh at what you think is awesome. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Some of the things where I go, wow, this is living. I wonder if God's going, man. Because I looked at my son and I said, boy, your sights are low. You're easy to please. Soda and candy just get, you know, set you off. And God is probably saying to me, Bob, your sights are so low, so easy to please. You could dream more than that. You could do more than that. If you really think that's living. And so we have to be, we have to apply this. I mean, I think about this. A fizzy drink and unlimited candy can be the pinnacle of life for a certain person. For other people, it's different things. What's the pinnacle of life for you? And the question then is, the pinnacle of life for you is God going, oh, silly. That's something to think about. That's something for us to consider. Because there's a big difference between existing and living. See, we don't want a bios that goes on forever. That would be eternally existing. I was reading a book by Tim Keller. And he said, eternally existing is my definition of hell. Because you just live forever in this mediocre state of just existing. Who would want that? And you know, artists and writers and singers have thought about that and dealt with that. I don't know if you've ever read, there's a children's book, and I I should say quotations, children's book, because it deals with such heavy themes. It's called Tuck Everlasting. If you've ever read that, it's about a family that finds a little spring that gives them eternal bios. They can't die. They stop aging. And they're thrilled for a little bit. And suddenly it begins to dawn on them the implications they can't establish relationships with other people because they watch them age and die. They don't want them to drink the, the water because they know at some point maybe this relationship will fail and then we'll hate each other eternally. And, they, and so they guard it to keep people away from it. And, one, and the story's about a little girl who finds it. They stop her from drinking it. And the father finally has this little talk with her. And just a, what he says is, he says, you know, living is such a heavy work because she told him, I don't want to die. And he says, I know, living is such hard work. But off to the side like us, not in the mainstream, the way we are. He says, it's useless too. It don't make no sense. You can't call it living what we have. We just are. We just be like them rocks by the side of the road. We just exist. You see, we don't want eternal bios. We want eternal zoe. That's what we need. Because that's eternal life with meaning. It's a meaningful life for, the, for eternity. 
Have you ever talked to somebody who says, well, I don't know, heaven sounds like everybody just sits around and sings. Doesn't sound like that much fun to me. No, no, no. Eternal Zoe, that means you will be doing things for eternity that are meaningful, that are exciting, that are new, new discoveries. My friend George Lamb is a uh, surfer. And I said, how does this sound for heaven, George? If Jesus says to you, there's this planet 800,000 parsecs away. That's my Star Trek coming out now. 800,000 parsecs away. It's got a surf that's never been surfed. Go check it out for me. And I was talking to George. George was like, oh, man, that would be awesome. Right? That's what we're talking about. That's why eternal zoe is what is so important, that Jesus uses that word, eternal zoe. Because zoe makes things makes life worth living. It's a quality of life. It takes effect now and it lasts after death into eternity. He's trying to show them there's a greater life available to you right now. You're all consumed with just eating and drinking and functioning and working and making money. You're just eating up with that and you're missing what I put you here for. Because that's what we want. We chase it madly. We have these ideas of things that make life worth living. And to God, it's like saying, I just want lots of Sprite and candy. It's just ridiculous. He says, don't look for the food that spoils. Don't exhaust yourself for a false zoe. And the Bible talks about all kinds of false ideas about life. He says, this is the food that brings eternal life. And notice here, he tells them, this is the food that is given. They said, what must we do? He says, this is a food that's given. He's trying to push them, to get them to think beyond their cultural boundaries, to think about something a little bigger than what they're imagining in this world. And he's still doing that. God is still going around to people who follow Jesus Christ. And he's saying, your dreams are too small. Your hopes are too low. Your desires are too low. You're building this around money. You're building this around things, and you're missing where the true joy is. I had a person tell me one time when I was talking to them about Jesus, and they said, do you give money to the church? I said, yes, I do. I do give money. Now, it's kind of a weird thing, you know, like when you're the pastor, because you're giving money to the church that pays you to teach. and So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a sense that I really want to do that. But he says, think about all the things you could have done with that money. If you hadn't have given that money, what you could do, what you could get. And I was telling you, yes, but that's earthbound thinking. That's material thinking. That's short-term thinking. I said, the house is, the house is, my house is going to crumble and fall someday. I'm going to die, and everything that I've accumulated, I will not take with me. It's stuff. It's not much stuff, but it's stuff, right? All the money you have or spent or kept or whatever, it won't follow you. But there is money that you can spend that changes people's lives for eternity. That will follow you. And I, I know it's kind of trite and cliche, and I've said it before, but, you know, I'm, I'm not above being trite and cliche, I think. There's some of you maybe a thousand years from now, this Navajo is going to come up to you and say, thank you 
Thank you for what you did for me. And be, you'd be like, ah, I, didn't, I don't know you. Yeah, but you sent people. And those people told me about Jesus. And here I am. See, that is money that was spent that can last for eternity. We have to think about that in how we deal with our lives, with our time, with our finances, with so many aspects of our life because there is bread that we can work for that spoils, but there is a bread that never spoils, that lasts for eternity. Money invested in spiritual things reap eternal dividends. Finally, in, in, in verse 27, as you look at that, he says, don't work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal zoe, which the Son of Man will give you. It's given. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. This is an interesting thing. He's placed his seal of approval. And this is something that would have been very familiar to them. Very familiar. The, the, the idea of a seal is something that has, has deep meaning. A seal actually meant there's some sort of relationship. Uh, a ruler, if he wanted to send out a command to one of the kingdoms that he's ruler over, he would write this letter. He'd get a trusted servant, someone that there's some sort of relationship, uh, because it's a trusted servant, and then he would seal it. He'd do the whole thing you've seen him do. They do with wax, they liquid wax, and then they press the seal into the wax to seal the letter. And that seal, what that seal tells them, it says, this person who's bringing this to you is important to me, important enough to give this valuable information. So you take this information seriously, almost as if you're talking to me, not just my messenger. So a seal means there's a relationship. A seal means that the person in charge approves of the message. This is my message. It's an authentication of the message. And it's interesting, in the Greek, it seems to be referring to a sealing. This, the Father has placed his seal of approval. It seems to be saying, this has been done for me. The seal of approval has been placed upon me. And so then theologians just go crazy, right? Because Jesus doesn't tell us exactly when the seal of approval was put on him, but he tells us that it has been done. And most, and I, I agree with this, I think possibly that was when Jesus was baptized, when God said, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And then I love that God says, listen to him. Listen to him. This is my son. I put my seal of approval on him. Second thing they're going to interject, they're going to say, well, what, what must we do? And that's verse 28. This is an easy outline to make, right? They asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? Now, can you read that and see what the problem is right from the beginning? What do we do to earn God's approval? They've got, he just said it's going to get given to you. And they went, because that's not what they're listening for. So they're saying, what must we do to do the works of God? Now, couple things here. First of all, they're assuming, based on their identity as Israelites, as Jews, that they're the ones who can do whatever it takes to be right with God. The whole rest of the world can. It's just us. They became very self-inward looking, very cliquish, which can happen even now for Christians. We're the good ones. They're going to hell. We're right. They're all wrong. We're better than them. And, and this, is, this is what's going on here. And they're subtly saying, we're in charge. 
we can do what we need to do. It's within our power to do what God requires, which means I'm in control, which is mankind's problem since the very beginning. I do what I want to do because I'm in charge. And so, because they want to be in charge, they want to do the works. The word for works there is the idea of a work that distinguishes the peculiar or particular abilities of a person. They reflect what type of person that is. So what they're thinking is, we are the children of God. We're his chosen ones. So we can do the works. Just give us the one, two, three. Give us the ABC. Give us the list. And we will do it and earn God's approval. And Jesus has been saying, and he will continue to say, that my works reveal me. It's interesting. He's saying not just my miracles reveal me. Everything I do reveals me. Watch me. Watch the way he loves. Watch the way he cries. Watch the way he speaks. Watch the way he talks to children. Watch the way he confronts or encourages. Watch his humor. Watch his anger. They're looking for, you know, three points, bulletin points. We can do this. God will be happy. He will bless us. We will be comfortable, safe, and secure. And we fall into that still. We think if I follow God, he's going to make my life easy. It's all going to be hunky-dory and great. It doesn't work out that way all the time. Sometimes, but not all the time, because he doesn't promise that. He promises, if you follow me, I will be with you. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. And so they were figuring this. Give us the formula. Kind of the audacity of saying, we can handle this. We can be in control. Just tell us what it is. So what does Jesus say? Show us what to do. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He's saying the work of God is not a work, technically. Just believe. They were saying works. Notice they assumed a list. Jesus says work, singular. There's one thing, just one thing. Believe in the one he has sent. That's what's so important. And that's not what they wanted to hear. Just believe on the one who has sent you. It is a gift. It is given to you. The work of God is not a work. It's a gift. So just receive it. This is astounding when you begin to think about it. Think about it. What does God want you to do? What does God want me to do? Believe on Jesus. It's like that truly, truly, look at me, look at me, look at me. Jesus is saying to us, just look at me. Believe in me, just look at me. Don't let what other, other people do, don't let what other Christians do define who I am. Look at me to see who I am. Look at my works, my life, my daily living, and it will demonstrate to you who I am. In the Old Testament, there's a great illustration of this. There's the story of Naaman. If you haven't heard it, just real briefly, Naaman is a ruler and he's a warrior. He's second in command of all of Syria, one of the great world powers at that time. And in, in a number of their battles, they captured a bunch of Hebrews when they, when they defeated the, the Israelite army. And one of the people that he captured was, was a little girl. And, and she became one of his slaves. And he got leprosy. And she tells him, in my country, there's a prophet who could heal you. 
because he serves the real God, the living God, the true God, and, and he, can, he can heal you. And, and interestingly, Naaman decides, I got nothing else going on. My gods haven't worked. Nothing's worked. I'm going to die of leprosy. I'm going to be shunned. I'm not going to be able to do it. And interestingly, in, in a secular source, we have a, a, a story of a, of a great warrior who had a skin disease at the same time. And I think it's Naaman because he was a great leader of men and winner of battles, but he had a skin disease and, and it, we find out it was leprosy. And so what does he do? He comes to Israel and what, what is he thinking? This is going to be expensive to get healed. He brings gold. He says, and he's thinking, I may be asked, you know, bring me the, the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. It's going to be a great you know, a, a, a great fight that I'm going to have to do. Go kill, you know, Schmog, the dragon at the, at the mountain of doom. You know, it's going to be something I'm going to have to do like that. So he brings all this gold and he brings his best warriors. He brings these warriors with him and he's ready to earn his healing. Right? And what happens? Elisha doesn't even come out and talk to him. Think about how the, this guy's second in command of the largest, second in command of the nation, in command of the largest army in the world. And he comes to Podunk University. He comes to this little bitty place, this little bitty town, little bitty nothing place, this little bitty hut. And he goes, hey, I'm here to get a healing. Tell me what I must do. I got gold. I got silver. I got warriors. I bring gifts and rare items, you know, all this stuff. Just tell me what it'll cost. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant. Can you imagine... What a down. I mean, this is just such a put down. Sorry, I'm too busy for you, pal. You know, you're the, one of the greatest men in the world right now, but I'm off with you, right? So, so the servant comes and he says, my master says, go dip your head, go, ju- go jump in a river. Go jump in the Jordan River, get wet seven times, you'll be healed. Thanks. Clack. He's gone. And he's like, sword ready. What? And then you see in the story, he turns and he says, uh, we got a better river in Syria. The Tigris River is a much greater, much more beautiful river than that little creek they call river. This is a joke, and he starts to leave. And, and his servant tells him, he says, Master, if he'd have told you to go get the broom of the Wicked Witch in the West, you'd have gone off and you'd have slain her and you'd have got that broom. And, you'd have, and he says, he's asking you to do something that's harder. Swallow your pride and go dip in the water because you can't earn it. You can't earn this healing. That's that story. And that's what changes. That man becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of Yahweh, I should say, Jesus Christ. Um, He becomes a follower because of that. He suddenly sees, I'm one of the strongest, richest, most powerful people in the world, and I can do nothing for myself. And it has been given to me. Here Jesus is saying, it is given to you. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Just believe. Remember the Jewish idea of what belief is. With the Jews, the idea of belief was very much this idea that you you look at the, the facts as much as you can gather. You make a decision based on that. You begin to understand this is what implies. And then by faith you say, therefore, he is God. And then your life changes. 
And if your life doesn't change, you didn't really believe. We have in our culture this idea that belief is an intellectual thing. You know, do you believe two and two is four? Yes, I believe that. I believe that. You know, it's just all intellectual. It's all in your head. The Jews, it was this idea. It was a part of your mind working, but also there was this part of where you take this step of faith and then you change. You live differently. And if you don't live, if Jesus came back today and he found people who said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but their lives in no way reflected him, even an attempt to live for him, he would say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not belief. Belief brings changes. They, they're over a long period of time. They may be small steps. I understand that. There may be two steps forward, one step back. There may be one step forward, two steps back. I mean, that kind of thing happens. But the thrust of your life, what do I want? I want to follow Jesus. He goes, that's what I'm talking about. It's a gift that we receive. And it's very interesting here. The word that he uses for believe is this idea of continually believing. In other words, you are going to be challenged throughout your life to keep believing. Keep believing. And so the question is, where are you at right now? Where's your struggle right now? Where's my, what's my struggle right now? Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. I will walk through you, walk through this with you. I will be there for you. You can talk to me anytime. Walk with me. Now, um, we're going to stop there. It's about time. Although, oh, what's coming next is really cool. Man, you guys, uh, I know it. You don't. Sucks to be you. Okay, so um, just, just awesome for us to think about. Let me just say one quick thing about this idea of this Zoe life. Because it's, uh, it's interesting. It's not, an, it's not an eternal ideal like, uh, like a, a Western uh, logical person would think it's not a mystical principle, but the bread of heaven is a person. And this is a tremendous, important thing for us to understand. Christianity is a very personal religion. It's full of intellectual truth. It's full of mystical experience, too, but that's not what it is. It's much bigger than that. It's not a force. It's not an ideal. It's a person because you can know a person. You can befriend a person. You can welcome a person. You can talk and you can listen to a person. We have a God who has cried and laughed and got angry and suffered and even screamed in terror at one point. This is intensely personal. A lot of marriages um, can struggle, oftentimes because they start out as a personal relationship and then they become a business relationship. What I mean by that is, Two people can be together and they can share responsibilities and they can talk to each other when needed and and they can work on the allocation of resources. They can do quid pro quo. You know, they can keep count. I do this, then you do that. We'll make it even, fair, square, just like that. And, 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 And it becomes a business relationship. And the question is, but then do they understand each other? Do they have a deep interchange between each other? Is there mutual affection and commitment? Do they enjoy being together? Is there mutual support bearing each other's burdens? Do they give each other priority in their life? Are they willing to change for each other? See, that's the difference between a personal loving relationship and a business experience, a business relationship. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. And that's what your relationship with God is supposed to be. It's not a business relationship. It's a personal relationship. 
Because in a personal relationship, he's convicting you, he's teaching you, he's, con- he's, he's confronting you, he's encouraging you, he's loving you. And then you begin to be willing to rearrange your life for him. Because that's what happens in a loving relationship. Because he's not just a person. This is what's so important. He's a broken person. My wife, at times, especially when the kids were little, we would bake bread, like healthier bread. And she would bake these loaves of bread, and when they, and they come out and they smell so good, and the, and the loaves, and they look good, and you're just like, oh, that is, you know, let it sit for what, blah, blah, blah. And, and, but here's the interesting thing. That bread does me no good until it's broken, until I tear a piece off, you know, and slather on honey butter or whatever cancels out, whatever goodness is in that bread gets canceled out immediately, right? And, and, and I eat it, and I digest it. I take it into my life. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And he has to be broken. And he did that on the cross for us. And that enabled us to eat and digest and grow and become more like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John writing this down. These are the words we see in a little bit. We see Peter say, these are the words of life. Where else will we go? And so, Father, help us to cling, cling to these words, to put them into action. Help us to be willing to look at Jesus in our day-to-day living and alter our lives accordingly to live for eternity rather than just for the here and now. Help us to be brave enough to do that, Lord, and to be strong enough to do that. And in doing that, we experience eternal zoe, Life that means something has great meaning and vitality and worth. Father, thank you. That's what you made us for. And that's what's available to us. Help us to grab it. In Jesus' name, amen.